So today we're looking um, at a well-known passage in the Gospel of Matthew. If you joined us last week, we started a series in Matthew asking the question, what is Jesus like? In the letter to the Colossian church, Paul writes that Jesus is the image of the invisible God, which is to say that what Jesus is like, God is like. And what God is like, and what we think God is like, really matters. Um, A.W. Tozer, famous author, said this, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. You know, religion has been responsible for some of the best and worst of history. People's view of God led to the development of the first hospitals, whilst other people's views of God led to the Crusades. History is littered with the result of what comes into people's minds when they think about God. And uh, more personally, you know, what we think about God has a huge impact on our lives, whether we think he exists or not, whether we think he is kind or not, whether we think he is angry with us, how we think about God affects our lives. And so over these next few weeks, we're listening to Matthew's eyewitness account of Jesus, Matthew being one of Jesus' 12 closest followers. And we're just trying to notice, what is he like? And today, we're in Matthew 19, verse 16, if you've got your Bibles, which should come up on the screen. It says this, and behold, a man came up to him saying, teacher, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? And he said to him, why do you ask me what is good? There is only one who is good. If you would enter life, keep the commandments. He said to him, which ones? And Jesus said, you shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. The young man said to him, all these I have kept. What do I still lack? Jesus said to him, if you would be perfect, go, sell what you possess and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come, follow me. When the young man heard this, he went away sorrowful for he had great possessions. So we don't know a huge amount about the man who comes to Jesus here. Luke's gospel refers to him as a ruler. Matthew and Mark refer to him as rich and young. And so we get the famous title, the rich young ruler. And it's clear from the passage that he was a Jew. His question, what good thing must I do to inherit eternal life, was just a good Jewish question. Um, Less about how do I get to heaven when I die, which is kind of the way we often hear it, Um, and more about how do I get in on what God is going to do when he puts right what is wrong? How do I get in on the life that is truly good? And in verse 17, Jesus encourages him, keep the commandments. All these I've kept, says the man, in verse 20, what still do I lack? And there's no hint here that the man is anything but genuine. There are times in the Gospels where people are asking questions to trip Jesus up, but this isn't that. This man just appears genuine. What do I still lack? And Jesus says two things. Verse 21, give everything to the poor and come, follow me. And we read that the man went away sad. In fact, in Mark's Gospel account, it says this, uh, he was deeply dismayed and he went away grieving. I wonder how you um, hear this passage. What is Jesus like in this passage? Perhaps 
seems like he's a bit hard, right? Setting the bar a little too high, perhaps a bit stern or cold, maybe aloof. I remember um, someone showing me the trailer to Sleepless in Seattle. You know, many watched Sleepless in Seattle? Yeah, that's a lighthearted rom-com. Is it 90s or something? I don't know. Um, but anyway, this trailer had underneath it the soundtrack from a horror movie instead. And it is amazing how different it feels. Honestly, sinister and dark and frightening. All because someone changed the music bed. The soundtrack makes a huge difference. And, you know, I think that the, the soundtrack that we sort of put under a text like this sometimes is kind of like in the minor key, right? A little bit moody, a little bit heavy. But I just don't think it's the right soundtrack. This same story um, appears in three of the four Gospels, and uh, Mark adds a really important element in his, a really important line. In Mark 10, verse 21, he says this, the man said, what still do I lack? And Mark adds this, Jesus looked at him and loved him. One thing you lack, he said, go sell everything you have. Jesus looked at him and he loved him. Doesn't that change the whole feel? He looked at him and he loved him. Doesn't that change the way we see Jesus here? That's the soundtrack. He looked at him and he loved him. There's a famous painting by Heinrich Hoffmann in 1889 of this exact encounter, and it captures this sense. And critics note the sympathetic tilt of Jesus' head, the softness in his eyes as communicating the affection of Jesus for this man. Hoffman, studying the passage, um, he heard the right soundtrack. What is Jesus like here? How do I paint him? Full of love. Leaning towards this man with affection. But it's not the sort of love that just takes the easy road, says the easy thing, not soft or cheap. It's the sort of love that risks offense in the hope of healing like a parent confronting their child over a habit that they know will destroy them. Jesus, loving this man, tells him, give everything away and follow him. But why? Why is that loving? To quote Tina Turner, what's love got to do, got to do with it? What's, why is this love to say that? Three quick things. Jesus speaking to this rich man, in this way, is loving because of the proficiency of Jesus, the deficiency of riches, and the sufficiency of God. I was quite pleased with the rhyme scheme there. Um, proficiency, deficiency, sufficiency is a bit of a tongue twister. Have fun with that. Um, but the proficiency of Jesus, to be proficient at something is to be really good at it. And Jesus is good at a lot of things, but he is particularly good at seeing straight to the heart of people. It says he looked at him. It's a moment he looked at him. And he saw through the questions this man was asking. He saw past his position, his status, his money, his good deeds, through and past the mask he was wearing. He looked at him and he saw straight to his heart, straight to the great love of this man's life, to the thing that was most important to him, his wealth. And like a good doctor, he just diagnoses the problem. It's interesting that Jesus doesn't tell anyone else to give all their money away, in case you're sitting there stressing out. 
He doesn't do this. It's not required anywhere else. This isn't, this is describing what is happening and what happened, not prescribing what should always happen. It's not normative. But you know what is normative? Jesus putting his finger on the thing that functions as primary in people's lives. Whether it's money, like with this man, or status and people's praise, like with the Pharisees, or ethnicity, like with the Jewish leaders and the Samaritans, or religious duty, like with the priests, or even family, like with the man, if you know the story, who wants to go and bury his father. Time and again, Jesus sees straight through to the real issue, and he's willing to confront it. He looked at him as he looks at us, and he sees straight through to our hearts. And he gently, lovingly, but firmly and clearly puts his finger on the thing. And he says, you've got to let that go. You've got to let that go. Apparently, uh, in the Crusades, the mercenaries, um, when they got baptized, would do so holding their swords out of the water. They didn't want their swords to go in the water. They, they didn't want to surrender that bit. You know, if this, if this was that man, he would be holding his wallet out of the water. And Jesus sees it and he puts his finger right on it. But again, why is that love? Why is that loving to do that? Well, it's love because he knows that those things are unable to meet our deepest needs. He knows the second point, defic- the deficiency of riches. I read a poem recently um, and uh, the poet is wrestling with his own desires and he writes this. Understand that there is a beast within you that can drink till it's sick, but cannot drink till it is satisfied. There is a beast within you that can drink till it is sick, but cannot drink till it is satisfied. We chase and chase so many things that promise life, promise satisfaction, promise happiness. Nearly every single advert we see does that, right? And yet story after story shows that they are counterfeit again and again and again. I read of the entrepreneur Neil Patel. He's a millionaire by the age of 21. And he says this, I was experiencing all the things that money can buy, the clothes, the accommodation, the jewelry, the food, but none of those things were deeply satisfying. Sure, it felt good at first, but then it felt like no big deal. The thrill was gone. What was happening? Wasn't this what I had worked so hard for? I realized that my entire life goal, making millions of dollars, didn't satisfy me at all. Or the actor, singer Miley Cyrus, speaking of fame, she says this, it's a never-ending cycle, getting more money, having more hits, being the lead in the movie. Those things might stimulate you, but they don't make you happy. I've experienced it all already, and I'm telling you firsthand, it doesn't. Or perhaps even a couple of weeks ago, um, I was listening to the Olympic diver Chris Mears, and he was talking about winning the gold in Rio 2016, and how after it, he plummeted into deep depression. And he said this, for years, I told myself that I'd be happy when I get this. And when I get to this position, I'll be happy. And then I got it. And I wasn't. You see, the life we long for, yearn for, cannot be found in money, fame, gold, medals, success. The Bible is clear. Those things just cannot satisfy us. Not because they're bad, just deficient. Sometimes Christians have 
seen them as bad. And so the Puritans would deny themselves all sorts of things. Asceticism was the practice of going without for the sake of spiritual gain. But the Bible just doesn't really have a problem with things. In 1 Timothy, Paul writes this, command those who are rich not to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, but to put their hope in God, who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. Everything for our enjoyment. It's good. The issue isn't with stuff. It's with where our hope is. It's how that stuff functions in our lives. I read this little book. Most days, um, it's uh, called Every Moment Holy. It's just random little liturgies. Um, There's one for making coffee. There's one for changing nappies. There's all sorts of liturgies in there. Uh, But there's one for shopping. Any of you shoppers? And it says this. To, say, to, go, to just read through and pray through before shopping. Spare us the heartbreak, O Lord, of trusting in things that cannot hold the weight of our greatest hopes. Spare us the heartbreak, O Lord, of chasing after things that cannot bear the burden of our greatest sorrows. Things that cannot bear the weight of our greatest hopes or the burden of our greatest sorrows. Spare us those things, God. And it's exactly what's going on here. Jesus wants to spare this man. You'll eat till you're sick, but never till you're satisfied. It's just deficient. You've got to let it go. He knows the deficiency of riches, but finally, he knows the sufficiency of God. A few chapters earlier, Jesus told a parable. Um, well known, the kingdom of God is like a pearl merchant who upon finding a pearl of great price, sells everything he has in order to buy it. The pearl merchant here stands in direct contrast to this rich young man. He doesn't go away sad. He sells everything, everything, recognizing the surpassing value of the pearl. You see, when Jesus says to this man, give away what you have and come, follow me, he's calling this man to that which is of higher value. The deficiency of riches is followed by the sufficiency of Jesus. The biblical authors make the point again and again and again. John writes, Jesus came to give us life and life to the full. Paul says, this is where we find the life that is truly life. I love that line, the life that is truly life. The life that this rich and ruler is asking about has come to Jesus with the question about is only found in Jesus. St. Augustine, one of the most influential early church leaders, um, in his pursuit of satisfaction, he began as a womanizer, a gambler, and a drunk, only to eventually find God and famously write the line, our hearts are restless until they find their rest in you. David Livingston was one of the most famous missionaries in church history. He, he uh, went to Africa in the mid, 19, mid to late 19th century, left family and friends and his desire to search, share Jesus. And he experienced all sorts, all manner of trials and rejection and danger and sickness and hunger. And he eventually ends up dying on the mission field. He gave everything, surrendered all. But before he died in a lecture to Cambridge University, He told of all the cost, all the pain, all the heartache, and he finished with these words, but I never made a sacrifice. How could he say that? Of course, what do you mean? I never made a sacrifice. You see, what he found 
And God was worth it all. The life that is truly life. And he looks like, he sounds like that pearl merchant, right, who never looked back. He sounds like Paul. He says, I count everything as lost compared to the joy of knowing Christ. <laughs> I was at a conference a couple of years ago, and um, this elderly lady called Hannah got up to share. She's hunched over, broken English, and she spoke to this auditorium full of people. And she told of her story how she'd been born in North Korea where it was illegal to follow Jesus. She and her husband had become Christians. They were discovered, they were taken to prison, separated, beaten to the point that when they were put back in the same room together, in her words, we didn't even recognize one another. Her husband died from his wounds and she escaped to China alone. And you know what she did? She started a church by secretly crawling into a women's prison every night to tell them about Jesus. And as she spoke, she said how there'd been this song that she'd sung all the way through, from childhood, through prison, through the loss of her husband, through pain and sorrow. And she sang it in this large auditorium, this frail little woman. And you could have heard a pin drop. She sang this. I'd rather have Jesus. I'd rather have Jesus than silver or gold. I'd rather have Jesus than riches untold. I'd rather have Jesus than anything this world affords. I'd rather have him. You see, to her, he was of immeasurable value. The life that is truly life. She'd surrendered everything. And what she found was joy. You see, when Jesus puts his finger on something in your life, he isn't angry. He isn't frustrated. He isn't judgmental. That's just the wrong soundtrack. He's loving you. Real joy, real life is in this direction, he says. It's this way. You see, the rich young ruler doesn't listen. And, and what's it say? He says he goes away sad. How different to St. Augustine, to David Livingston, to that lady Hannah, to the pearl merchant in the parable who found that in letting go, they'd stumbled into joy, into the life that's truly life. You see, Jesus knows our hearts. And when he puts his finger on something, as he may well be doing for many of us here this morning online, you have to know that it is him loving you. It's him saying there's nothing down that road. It doesn't lead where you think it will. There's nothing down there. Come this way. Come into life. And if we can see that, if we can see what he's like, despite how hard it can feel, if that's the soundtrack underneath, if we know that he is loving us, well, then perhaps we're just a little bit more likely to trust him. You see, what we think he is like really, really matters. Just to finish, in the, in the passage Matthew puts directly before this passage, it's right before it if you read in your Bibles, 
Jesus is speaking and he says, these guys have got it. The kingdom belongs to these people. Do you know who they are? They're children. Children who didn't have much wealth, didn't have any status, but did have a big capacity to trust and just throw themselves on his knee. They sold him. uh, I I love this old hymn, just to finish this line. I love that will not let me go. I rest my weary soul in thee. I give thee back the life I owe, that in thine ocean depths its flow may richer, fuller be. I love that will not let me go. That's what's going on in this passage. Thank God for love that will not let us go. And thank God that that's what he's like.